My mountains and rivers are in the Jalisco region of Mexico and in Scotland. My family is Romani, so we have travelled and found an unsettled home in many other places. For the last two generations, my family has been fortunate enough to live throughout Aotearoa, first settling in the land of Ngaitahu, Ampakea as in foreign, and Tawiwi as in not Māori or normal in this place. Among other things, I'm a writer, and last year I was the Tehiranga Waka International Institute of Modern Letters and Creative New Zealand Writer-in-Residence. It's as a writer that I come to you today. My name is Pip Adam. This talk is one adapted from a keynote I was lucky enough to give at the AUSEC ANZ Ngā Tohu o Te Huariri Beyond Human Scale Conference in November 2021. Giants in Space If there's a central image for this recording, or perhaps a perfect object to be looking at or sitting with as you listen, it would be Sorowit Song Sataya's work, The Interior. I'm currently writing a novel about a group of giant humans banished from Earth and spacecraft powered by sound. And this talk is a lot about the things I'm finding out as I write it. It's a book where I've struggled with describing scale and with finding ways to tell a story about beings that are bigger than human. And some of the struggle left the day I walked into the Adam Art Gallery and saw Song Sataya's life-size sculpture of Moa lying surrounded by a group of native and endemic bird species, some extinct like the moa, some endangered. These cast and carved works, polished and abstracted by the process of digital modelling, gave me a new sense of the giant. I'd last seen the interior at the end of 2019, on the north terrace of the Auckland Art Gallery, Toi o Tamaki. The installation at the Adam last year was part of Listing Stones, Jumping Rocks, the exhibition curated by Sue Ballard and Sophie Thorne. It was the first time I'd seen the work displayed inside a building. It appeared to me on that day not as something outside brought in, but like the work had punched some kind of portal. Into the outside, yes, but also through time and drawing back through it all sorts of conversations and stories. Like the forest that grows up in Max's room and where the wild things are, the work transforms the space rather than the space transforming the work. We stand in the company of it, the giant bird, the awe of the place that would hold it, the overwhelming grief of the fallen, the lost, the strong, massive being, prone and smooth and heartbreaking. Coming into contact with the interior had a double effect on me. It made me, at once, want to continue to write and never write again. It felt like the work made a difference. There is some kind of shortcut to the centre of me, bypassing criticism, fear, all those chattering words that stop me seeing things clearly. I am rearranged on a cellular level when I am in the company of this work. It makes me frustrated again that my means of expression is words the medium that so often ruins a felt experience by trying to tie it down to marks on a page, linear story. In the moment of encounter with a work like Song Satire's, it feels impossible for fiction to have any kind of radical potential. Is there a way to write as the world burns that can cause any effective change? What can fiction do? Is there any point of writing when a work like Song Satire's exists? I doubt it. I'm not sure. I don't know. 
One of the truest things that can be said about me is that I don't know. Although not comfortable, doubt is possibly one of my favorite states. In doubt, more than one thing is possible. In doubt, I'm always listening for, hunting for more information. Doubt is one of the few places that words are plenty but chaotic, not yet overcoming or explaining a sense, not yet ordering anything. Instead, ordered by the experience, the anxiety, the confusion, the suspicion. In doubt, I am in direct relation to the knowledge that I understand very little about myself and even less about the world around me. It shines a light on the fact that I am naive in almost every place and almost every moment. Often by design, I seek out places, experiences and people that confuse me just to again feel the disorientation and doubt that breaks the automatic need to tell the story in order to capture the moment. To seek out and try to be in doubt is hardly a neutral move. It's complicated and dangerous. Not knowing, like all knowledge or information deficits, can be dangerous, especially when you write things that are in places where people read them, or when you get given an opportunity to be heard in a situation like this. Not knowing is one thing, but acting or commenting from a position of not knowing, especially when one has the ability to mimic the language of certainty, can lead to misrepresentation, misinformation and harm. So this is the important thing I want to say, for you for sure, but mainly for me, because I have written this over and over. It's been refined and carefully structured. I'm nervous about making this recording and I want you to like me, so I will slip into a tone that makes that might sound sure. I might become convinced by all this and become sure about things I don't fully understand, things that are changing by the minute. So mainly, I need to remind myself in your presence that mainly, in words, I am a fraud. My job as a fiction writer is to lie to lie in a way that allows the reader to believe in and care about things that are not real. I've always been a liar. My grandmother used to say I would tell a lie when the truth would have served me better. On her kind days, she would say that my imagination got away with me, but my ability to lie and deceive also comes from growing up in a family where passing was very important. I was brought up by people who can play three-dimensional chess in any social situation. My people made an intense study of other people's manners and rules. It was a magic that I look back on with a lot of love, but that I also carry the baggage of into a lot of situations. I can always tell the distance between what is expected and who I am. This distance, of course, because of my reliance on lying, is always the distance between who I am and the story I'm speaking about myself. Oddly, it's in the work of writing fiction that I feel this distance close the most. It's in pretending on the page that I feel at my most real. There's something honest that can only be gotten to in the lie. Like my family before me, to create my passable fictional worlds, I've needed to study. This is not the kind of rigorous work of other practices. I never fully understand anything that I talk or write about. I pick through knowledge, finding the things that suit my story. I disregard huge swathes of truth because they don't fit with the story I'm writing. What I'm aiming for is the illusion of expertise. For years I worked really hard to try to perfect this performance, becoming a thief as well as a liar, stealing language out of the mouths of soldiers, engineers, clothes designers. 
My plan was to be real, so close to real that my work was almost documentary. This urge seemed to come from some kind of belief that maybe something good could come out of all this lying. That maybe there was a way to put all this bad to some good. I thought this mirror quality could make some kind of difference. That there was a way I could magic people into compassion and wanting to do better. But it also came out of my own anger and confusion. Often I was trying to work out things on the page for myself. Why do some people have all the money and other people have none of the money? See further power, see further life expectancy, see further food and shelter. Sometimes I was building these little replicas for myself as a way to try and make sense of the things that made me angry. But there was something else in me. Was it an attraction to doubt, to the grey, to the muck that obscured the mirror, creating a new image? And I remained obsessed with the clunky sentence, the unrhythmic turn of phrase, the ugly, the line that builds distrust, the line that alerts the reader to the fraud, the artificiality, the act of reading rather than the world the reader is reading into. I never want a person consumed by my work. I want them awake to its forgery. I never want them to be taken by the world, to mistake compassion for one of my made-up characters as compassion for a real person, or to think that a passive recognition of injustice equates to any real action or change in the real world. In June, I went to an online event called Reimagining the Universe, South Korean sci-fi writers in conversation. The writers in conversation were Kim Bu-young and Bora Chung. In reply to a question about how science fiction reflects on and criticises current situations, especially misogyny, Bora Chung replied, I believe writing can't really do anything. So I go to protest and I march and I scream, and when I protest, I learn a lot. Women's rights, and especially reproductive rights, are very closely, very tightly related to the development of technology and science. And it doesn't always go with respecting women, or respecting whoever has the reproductive organs, as thinking sentient subjects. I learn these things every time I go to a protest. I learn new things. I learn, and I'm sorry to say, I learn horrible new things. And I get pissed off. And I write stories and go to more protests. I fell heavily for this statement by Bora. Sometimes my mind craves definitive statements, directions on how to live right. I find myself in awe of the binary, right, wrong, good, bad. I told almost every writer I met over the next month like I had found the solution. Writing, I would say, can't really do anything. We need to keep protesting. We need to continue to shout. It felt like an instruction, a way forward, a way for me to live with my dirty secret, that I spend a lot of my time making things up, like some bourgeois idol. My father still asks me when I am going to go back to hairdressing. He's never really seen any of my other work as work, and his suspicion becomes my suspicion and embarrassment, because literature, fiction, is a weapon of the ruling classes. It's done some very, very bad things. It's been used as a tool for colonisation, genocide, and rape. My father would say I was overreacting, and I would point to the parasocial grooming that takes place when we canonise Lolita again and again. And he would say, wait, didn't you just say you believe that writing can't really do anything? And I would say anything good. I meant writing doesn't do anything good. And my certainty around writing doesn't really do anything starts to crumble a bit, and I'm back here at doubt. But maybe my imaginary father in this imaginary conversation has a point. Maybe I am overreacting. 
Fiction exists in our minds. It's an imaginative act. Maybe my imaginary selective hearing of Bora Chung is correct. Maybe fiction can't do anything because it's limited to the imagination, the space that people argue for the neutrality of, that if we can imagine it, we can write it with no harm leaking into the real world. This is a long quote from an essay adapted from the forward to The Radical Imaginary, a collection of essays edited by Claudia Rankin and Beth Lafredi. But to argue, they say, that the imagination is or can be somehow free of race, that it's the one region of self or experience that is free of race, and that I have a right to imagine whoever I want, and that it damages and deforms my art to set limits on my imagination, acts as if the imagination is not part of me, is not created by the same web and matrix of history and culture that made me. So to say as a white writer that I have a right to write about whoever I want, including writing from the point of view of characters of colour, that I have a right of access and that my creativity and artistry is harmed if I am told I cannot do so, is to make a mistake. It is to begin the conversation in the wrong place. It is the wrong place because for one, it mistakes critical response for prohibition, We've all heard the inflationary rhetoric of scandalised whiteness. But it is also a mistake because our imaginations are creatures as limited as we ourselves are. They are not some special, uninfiltrated realm that transcends the messy realities of our lives and minds. To think of creativity in terms of transcendence is itself specific and partial, a lovely dream perhaps, but an inhuman one. After reading Rankin and Lafredi and speaking with friends, another idea comes to me as I'm walking my dog. Maybe the degree to which fiction can produce radical, real change is low. Maybe our imaginations are so infiltrated that it is hard to imagine change. But maybe I need to act like fiction does have the power to change. Or I'm at risk of writing fiction that does more harm. Like I say, to begin with I thought the way to effect change with fiction was to offer simulcrum of reality, to show people the way things were in their own world. But this illusion required me to hide all the workings of the machine that was making the mirror. To hide myself and my limited imagination. I wasn't showing people the way things were in their world. I was showing them the way I imagined things were in their world. The way things were for me in their world. And by extension, the way I thought things should be for them in their world. And it was arrogant and it changed nothing. At best, it led to a bit of hand-wringing and a sense that by seeing it, we had done something. I suspect this because I've done it myself. I have thought, oh, I know now. I know, the knowledge is within me and I have digested it and it will affect everything I do from now on. Which might not be much because I am lazy and afraid and I want to keep everything I own. This new position, that fiction has the potential for harm rather than the promise of help, seems to shine a really different light on the work. My lofty ideas of holding up a mirror to try and facilitate change seems to disregard the potential for harm my infiltrated imagination has if it is invisible. Hidden behind the mirror it is holding up. So, this tempers my aspirations for fiction, 
but also somehow elevates them to a much harder task because it's happening now and can be judged now, not in some imagined future where I will be long gone. How do I make fiction that does less harm? Is there a way to write fiction that never allows us to forget ourselves? To always be aware of the non-neutral nature of our imaginations? To look at our own experience and see how our imagination was formed? To question everything we have been told and taught? These are some of the questions I'm asking myself while I write my Giants in Space story. I'm wondering if the degree to which fiction has radical power is the degree to which it shows its doubt, its failure. The space it gives the reader to stay outside the work. But also maybe a work that shows its fakery and artifice can also alert us to the ways the worlds we live in are also fake and also artificial, not set in stone, not inevitable. Capitalism is a construct, money is illusionary, power is challengeable. To see the world strange, to doubt the things we've always done, to question the things we've always imagined, to make the things we take for granted obvious, to challenge the neutrality of the imaginative act of reading. I'm not fully convinced with these ideas. I'm not sure it will work. I am of course using my imagination which is biased to try and expose the biases of my imagination using a faulty machine to fix a faulty machine. I'm not sure fiction is capable of the things I want it to do, but the productive thing these questions are doing is keeping me in doubt, keeping me asking why I am doing the next thing, questioning anything I do automatically or anything that feels easy. It's helping me question who I think is watching, who I am writing to and for and with, who I am trying to please, and this is useful. So perhaps the only change will be in me. And I guess this is why I make a claim for the power of everyone writing fiction. I have little hope in fiction perhaps, but I have hope in stories. And I have hope in the act of storytelling. Possibly there is transformation to be had in creating and solving the problems that we can only see when we make our imaginations explicit in the world. But maybe that is too elitist. Maybe that seems like false hope. But I do dream of a flood of stories from a multitude of voices, spoken aloud on street corners, typed out and passed around, published in books, put in libraries. Perhaps there's some kind of decolonization of the imagination, some kind of flood that makes the canon obsolete, that redistributes the dominant imaginative paradigms. So, big dreams, big hopes. Now, how can I be useful for the next 30 or so minutes? What I think might be interesting is to make explicit some of the ways I am writing my present work. By way of illustration, I want to give a sense of my colonised imagination and the way the stories that I grew up with, the ones that formed my imagination, have led to the decisions I am making when writing the giants I am in for my novel. I'd ask you to listen for contradictions, for hypocrisies, listen for the ways I am lying. Use this talk as a way to speak back at what I say, to watch what is happening for you as you listen. I think this is probably the most useful thing I can do with the time we have. I began my university degree at 21 years old. 
I left school at 15 with no university entrance qualifications, but in the 1990s, at 21 years of age, the entry requirements were waived and people were allowed to enrol, and that's what I did. I was extremely excited. No one else in my family was very excited. I was the first person in my family to go to university, but I had my hairdressing qualification by then, so could work nights and weekends in a salon in Mission Bay. My father thought all university students were bludgers. Both he and my mother went into paid work directly after high school. So his suspicion was slightly lessened by the fact I would be working to pay my rent and expenses while I went to university. A diversion because I never miss an opportunity to bitch about our current housing crisis. There is no way I could do this now. My part-time hairdressing wage would not cover rent in any city in so-called New Zealand. But... In 1992, I was heading for university, very excited because I was going to study English, that weirdly named subject that, luckily for me, didn't just cover books written in English. My heroes were the Beats. I was obsessed with modernism, and this is what I studied at Auckland University, and I loved it. But there was a young lecturer who was a Victorian scholar. I did not take Victorian literature. I did not think Queen Victoria had any relevance to me or my quite secret desire to be a writer. A desire which was um, not undeterred by the fact I had no idea what being a writer entailed. Wearing black, I wondered. Drinking a lot. It wasn't until years later in Ototahi that I realised being a writer meant writing. Anyway, back to this Victorian. There was a rumour... Actually, I say that for dramatic effect. I know it to be true. A friend of mine took the paper she tore so it was true that she began her lectures on Wuthering Heights by playing Kate Bush's song, Wuthering Heights. Oh, I thought, that's the Heathcliff she's talking about. I loved Kate Bush, but it never occurred to me that Wuthering Heights was about the book Wuthering Heights. We didn't have many books at my house, the house I grew up in, but we did have a copy of Wuthering Heights, which my mother had won when she attended James Hargis College in Waihopai in Vicargo. So, over the holidays I read it, and I loved it. I didn't complete my degree that time. It actually took me 15 years to complete my undergraduate degree, but when I returned to university at Otago, the most Victorian of cities, I leapt into any paper that had Victorian books on it. I studied Latin. I was by this stage obsessed with the Romantics. I wore my long dark hair, braided the piano style, and wore long black skirts as I walked through the snow-covered botanical gardens. I looked a great deal like my grandmother, who was Romany, but I thought I looked British. I thought I looked like Mary Shelley. So long, indulgent way of saying, the first giant I fell in love with was Ozymandias. Weirdly, now that I look back on it and thinking about the colonised imagination, Ramesses II and the theft of the statue didn't even figure in my imagining of this giant. These feet, in my mind, stood in among the ruins of the Acropolis. I took Latin, but I understood the other centre of the classical world was Greece. I'd taken Near Eastern ancient history, and I am sure someone somewhere told me that Ozymandias was Ramesses, but it just never stuck. It never worked in my imagining of Percy Shelley's poem. I wouldn't have said it then, but there was something about the Britishness of the Romantics which appealed to me. As a Romany, Shikana, cut off from all my American and traveller relatives, in a country that read me as very simply white, I had the opportunity to reimagine myself as British, lean into that Scottish blood, 
And I guess this is part of what appealed about the Romantics. What I loved about the Romantics at the time was awe. The hugeness of everything the Romantics stood beside. The single man standing in the weather in a black suit. At some stage I left them behind, but not fully. In my writing, I've written a lot of huge things. I became obsessed with big buildings, rewriting the Burj Khalifa into the west coast of New Zealand. I wrote about the Rongyon Hotel in Pyongyang, the Grand Lisboa in Macau. I imagined a building toppling earthquake here in Whanganui Atara. In my next book, I set a single body swimming toward the plastic gyre in the vast Pacific Ocean. She met whales and a giant octopus. Then, in my last book, I wrote about people made twice as large as they split over two bodies. I think this interest in the large might come back to that wish I have to be pale and small. My body confuses me, but it has always felt larger and more noticeable than I would have liked. So I guess the desire to be in the company of bigger things is something that I'm, that I'm attracted to. Looking back, it seems inevitable from the start that I should write about giants. I've always thought this attraction to the big came from the romantics, but as a person living here, my imagination was being formed from a much earlier age. I feel like I knew about the moa before almost any other bird on these islands. This might not be a mistake. The extinction of the moa at the hands of the first peoples of so-called New Zealand seems like a useful story for a coloniser to tell. One of the main attacks from the coloniser government is on education, controlling what is taught, where and how. And yeah, I don't think it's a mistake that this story about the extinction of moa was elevated over other stories. This destruction is something amazing by the people you tried to destroy in order to colonise their land. I grew up close to Auraki in the 1970s, from 1977 to 1978, while I was at primary school hearing these stories. The Auraki Māori Action Committee occupied land at Takaparafa for 506 days in an attempt to block the development of the land by the Crown. Some of my first memories of television news are the images of these protests being violently broken up, with hundreds of police carrying batons and dragging people off their land. When I reassess this time, I can't help but tie these two things together. The story I was told about the extinction of the moa and the violent removal of people from their land, and the ways I am implicated in this. I grew up close to Auraki in the 1970s because of the violent removal of people from their land fact that was suppressed in favour of the story about the destruction of the moor by the people who were violently removed from their land. Sharon Levy writes in her book, Once and Future Giants, what Ice Age extinctions tell us about the fate of Earth's largest animals. It's astonishing to think that in New Zealand's rugged, though limited terrain, a group of 1,000 or so humans could find and exterminate every moor within a few decades a conclusion supported by numerous finds of butchered moor, all of which date to a small window of time. The time frame is actually more like 200 years, which I guess in the scheme of geological time could be seen as a few decades. But it seems that overhunting, this butchering, as Levy put it, is only part of the equation. Levy's book is making an argument for a human-based model for the extinction of continental megafauna, but she's right, this mass extinction does seem astonishing. As a writer, I'm always looking for the big sweeping phenomena, but what I like about the scientific model is that it tempers everything. 
Nothing is ever as straightforward as it first appears to me, a layperson. Julian Lloyds and others published an article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science in 2021 called No Evidence for Widespread Island Extinctions After a Pleistocene Hominin Arrival. This article complicates this idea of the mass butchering on islands. It suggests, and I quote, The arrival of humans on islands in the Holocene is often considered synchronous with large-scale extinctions of insular endemics. These extinctions are conceptually associated with human agency through mechanisms such as overhunting, habitat alteration, and the introductions of domestics. The latter, arguably, have had a much greater impact on island extinctions than overhunting, particularly for small mammals and birds, but also larger mammals. Now, I want to be careful with this information because I am not a scientist and I do not have an understanding of Matodonga Māori or Western science. What I'm interested in is the stories that have grown up and particularly the elevation of this story ahead of, say, ones about colonisers killing tangata whenua. To me, there's an almost uncanny resemblance to the story of the moa unprepared for hunters, I was told by a settler education system and the immune system of a group of people unprepared for, say, smallpox. From memory, I also think I heard about the extinction of moa well before I heard about whaling or even huia. I think sitting Sorowit Sung Satire's work, The Interior, next to the painting it makes reference to, Trevor Lloyd's Te Tangi o Te Moa, from 1907, gives me a visual cue to dismantle the directive way I was told the story of the extinction of the moa and question that part of my imagination that holds the things I think I know about giants on this planet. Lloyd's work uses realism to express its scene. It controls the composition, which in turn attempts to force the work into a narrative and into a place in the classical Western canon in turn trying to redefine so-called New Zealand into a Western culture. In comparison, Song Sataya's work is abstracted, making the effect more immediate. For me, it's a far more mood, tonal, gestural representation of the birds, which means I meet them with curiosity, surprise, not as representations of something real, which I consume as such, but as something I have to actively imagine to life. My imagination has to meet the imagination that created the work. The birds can be positioned differently every time the work is installed, making the work less held to one particular story or context. We are in the work, never forgetting ourselves, what we bring. For me, the interior references ice and reminds me of the far more consequential effects on fauna and flora and mineral that colonisation and capitalism has wrought. At the time I was being told the story of the moor, New Zealand was in the process of thinking big, a government initiative of industrialisation in which petrochemical and energy related projects figured prominently. In this way, Song Sataya's work is a helpful sort of intervention on my imagination. In 2018, I got to visit the bones of a giant sloth at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. It's massive. It could kill a hominin by sitting on it. It was huge and it was heavy and it's strong, but it has been gone since about 11,000 years ago. When looking at earlier mass extinction of megafauna on continental landmasses, 
conventional wisdom long held that the megafauna fell victim to a warming climate at the end of the last glacial peak of the Ice Age. Levy's book is part of a relatively recent move to challenge the climate change theory in favour of one based in homo sapien arrival and overhunting. Some of the evidence for this has been the study and relative certainty science has around the human-based island extinction of animals like moa. Louis et al.'s article suggests that models using island extinctions as evidence in support of anthropogenic megafaunal overhunting or as extensions of continental-level extinctions need to be reconsidered. Obviously, these competing stories are extremely exciting for me as a fiction writer who likes doubt. But it was Emma Maris writing about Levy's book that sent me back to look more deeply at the stories we tell about these large animals. Maris puzzles about why these extinct giant mammals seem to not have the fan base of dinosaurs. She says one fanciful explanation is that we have an abiding guilt for having killed them all off in our spear hunting days. Now again, don't trust me on this, but in my imagination there is a link between this possible guilt and the way these extinct giants are described. That maybe there is a sort of reimagining to assuage us of that guilt as a species, a recasting of ourselves as worthy competitors. I wanted to start with the way we talk about some of our first encounters with animals. This is a quote from Levy and I'm interested in the language as well as the incident it recounts. Charles Darwin wrote about watching a young boy, one of the first human visitors to the Galapagos, methodically slaughter hundreds of finches by simply whacking them with a stick as they approached him. In 1741, the German naturalist George Wilhelm Steller recorded the way a crew of Russian sailors stranded on Bering Island off the Alaskan coast hunted sea cows by paddling up to an unresisting animal, jabbing a harpoon into it and dragging it ashore. Stella's sea cow went extinct after less than three decades of human hunting. Levy writes that the largest of the Pleistocene-era ground sloths, the megalonics, was built like a tank with a massive skull designed to crush branches and may have stood taller than a mammoth. She goes on to describe the Shasta ground sloth as smaller and lighter, but still strikingly weird by modern standards. It had the strange peg-like teeth typical of its family, the toes of its hind paws, its main means of locomotion, curved under the sole of the flat foot, making it difficult to imagine how the animal managed to move at any speed. One more deficit and they could not have existed, commented Georges-Louis Leclerc, an influential scientist of Thomas Jefferson's day. You'll notice again and again that these large animals are described as almost mistakes, as if, and I may be pushing this way too far, that their extinction might be putting something right. They are also constantly described as naive or unprepared. These characteristics, slowness, naivety, not often described as innocence, seems to have somehow found its way into some of our imaginings of human giants. The giant non-human mammals become one of the human giants in this observation by Levy. From the beginning, People have seen what they wanted to see in the bones of America's extinct monsters. The devout 17th century colonists who found the first pair of mastodon molars were convinced they had discovered the remains of a human giant, proof that David and Goliath's story was true. 
Goliath was slain by one true shot. It seems like the most basic story of the underdog succeeding, the human-sized young shepherd who defeated the giant champion of the Philistines. I was brought up by two atheists and a Presbyterian, but I get that as well as being metaphorical, God is in the mix. There's the sense of a bigger plan afoot. That's how I learned the story, but I recently read in business website Inc., that we had been reading this story all wrong and there was a way of reconceptualizing it for business use. The next time you hear about David versus Goliath, the article says, don't think of an underdog, think of a confident competitor who is more than happy to be underestimated. The article, Three Things People Get Wrong About David versus Goliath, is quite wild. It supposes that Goliath was actually blind because he was suffering from a degenerative disease. Citing Malcolm Gladwell in his book Underdogs, the article explains that David realises how defenceless, weighed down by his armour, the giant is to an attack from a distance. The third thing we get wrong is that we misread the slingshot as a poor or underwhelming weapon. It's actually really dangerous and cutting-edge technology. This seems to be the story we tell ourselves about megafauna, those extinct and those we are making extinct. That the giants are naive and weak in the presence of our superiority that what matters is speed and wit, that we are a worthy foe to them. They are slow and they are naive and we are wily and our technology makes us stronger. This story seems to me, and I may again be pushing the boat out a bit too far, like a reinforcement of other stories we tell ourselves about power, that size or innate strength is no match for small and quick and smart, the individual against the many, There is power in a union, but if we tell a union long enough that they are better disbanded, that power goes. So much of the order of the world seems to be held in place by large groups of people behaving politely, and so much of this behaviour seems to be kept in check with stories. So this was my interest in creating my giants. At first, I was simply interested in what happened when you gave physical power to people with little societal power. But As I read about the megafauna and saw these stories of naivety told again and again, I realised that actually it is very easy for people with less physical power to control people with more physical power. The way to control them is to make them naive. So this is what I proceeded to do with my giants. I invented a system that imagines them back to themselves as weak and stupid through story and manners. I wanted to finish with a reading from my book. In this reading, I hope you can see what I am trying to do with story, trying to make it obvious, trying to show the workings of the machinery while the machinery is going. This section is all in dialogue, so I'm not sure how well it will work to be read aloud. But yeah, I guess I wanted to finish with nothing but the work, because finally, after all this talking is done, that is what we can judge things on, and that is what is left. The ship is perfect said Tracy. My left eye, said Alba, can just see out a skylight that was large when I first got in the spacecraft audition, but is small now. I can see the darkness and the stars, and they are beautiful, and I am thinking again about breaking out, but I can hear one of you talking through the walls, the sound more like touch now, we are all squashed so close to the walls, almost part of the walls. I was saying, said Jackie, and it was a beautiful sunset. One of the best, Tracy replied, but
she was only supposed to be gone for one coke. Alba, Alba, Jackie, Jackie said, and we all laugh. Our new laughs, the laughs a body makes when it's squashed up into the corner of a room as it gets bigger. The laugh a body makes at an in-joke, at a secret. It was a lovely sunset, Alba said. No, said Jackie, we can't stop with the sunset. We need to talk a lot more. We need more oxygen for our bigger lungs and there is not more oxygen available so we are tired and in pain. But our lives depend on the noise and we can't make noise with our bodies moving. So we need to talk a lot more now. It isn't as noisy and even though we are all sure there is enough sound to keep the ship going because the ship is that good, any gap in the conversation is possibly playing havoc with everything. Shall we have a conversation about what happened? Jackie asked. No, Tracy said. I think we should talk through the vents, through the walls. The three of us who have ended up sectioned off in this burrow, unsure if anyone else is alive, almost positive we're the only ones left. But not about what happened. I think stories are better, Alba says, retelling the stories we were told in training before we got on the ship. We were stupid for being quiet, Jackie said. Maybe someone told us this, maybe at training or maybe in passing, but the story is the mechanics of the ship have been tuned to a fine point to balance out the quieter times with the noisier ones. And the time between boarding the ship and the second growing, we slept for like eight hours every 24, we slept. Sure, sometimes during this time, when we were too big for Earth, but the right size for the spacecraft audition, we needed to shout, shout up into the roof, at the walls, make the microphones shake. We stomped our feet, Jackie said, and banged things and the power would rise. But normally, Alba said, the story is, the ship just listened and was content with the eight hours of quietness that fell over us as we slept. At least some of us awake, walking around, flushing toilets, the snoring, the farting. It stored the power from the noisy day deep inside it. Mainly, this was our job on the ship audition, to make noise. Even though you might have a sense now that back on Earth, before training, we were of trying so hard to be quiet, that is not a story we need to tell. And that is not a thought that needs thinking about because before training the sunset was beautiful and I know she was only supposed to be gone for a coke but when we got to the ship we all felt it. The sense of excitement that everything in the ship would rely on us walking with purpose, speaking clearly, sometimes shouting, sometimes singing and sometimes our f- stomping our feet and dance. Now though there is no dancing and all we can do is talk whisper into the walls, mouths pressed up against the walls, pushing vibrations through the walls, feeling the conversation through our cheeks and the other soft parts of us. And not talking on before training, and not talking about how we got here or where is the help. The spacecraft audition is a beautiful ship. They have made a good job of the spacecraft audition, and really, what would we know? We're bigger now, Tracy said. The story is we must be making more noise just from our bodies. Certainly, Jackie said.